This is chapter 97 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we talk money, money, money with the one and only Jill Schlesinger. CBS News business analyst and certified financial planner Jill Schlesinger pulls no punches when it comes to telling us what we're doing wrong with our money. But it's advice we desperately need to hear. Consider this. Nearly 7 out of 10 Americans say finances are a significant source of stress. Her new book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, looks to provide some solutions to alleviate our cumulative financial stress. She recently swung by our studios and spoke with our Michael Wallace about the ways to right our wrongs. But first of all, why did you write this book? Why? Uh, It's funny because there are a zillion financial books out there. And every time I looked at a financial book, because I have a podcast and a radio show, and when I'd have authors on, I never read a a financial book or a personal finance book that was geared towards the kind of questions that I was fielding on an ongoing basis. So maybe it was my friends, my family, my former clients when I was in the business, my colleagues at CBS, everyone would ask me these questions and I never saw them answered in one succinct place. So either we had these books that were really geared towards um, people who were in financial trouble and they, they were kind of, of the along the lines of, you're a bad person because you spend too much money. And the other end of the spectrum, we had the, you're going to get rich quick with my cool trading model. Mm. Let me tell you how. But everyone in the middle, people who have jobs and have careers and are really busy, keep making these same fundamental mistakes. And I didn't see a place where we could help them avoid those mistakes. And that's why I wrote it. You write, you list the mistakes. There's 13 in all. It was 13 just in a arbitrary number? or uh, I just love the number 13 because I do think it's sort of a fun, it's funny because it's sort of like, oh, it's unlucky. I think it's lucky. And I, and so it has nothing to do with my favorite ball player, I promise you. Now, the great thing about the book is you don't just list the mistakes people make, but through your years as a financial planner and people coming up and asking you for advice, you have some great stories to back up some of your points. Right. And I changed your name and Lori's Thank too. Thank you very much. The circumstances. Yeah. So what I, I realized, <laughs> the way we really came up with 13 is that when I was talking to my editor, you know, she was really interested in understanding, you know, are there any, is there anything we're leaving out? And I went through all of the emails that I had received over the last eight or nine years to my Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com email account. And I went through it with my producer and we were trying to say, well, what are the categories of questions we keep getting? And then we started to see a pattern of the types of people who were asking these questions. And then I started to think about, well, who are the clients I know who've made those same kinds of errors? And then we, we kind of changed some of the names to protect the innocent. Yeah. And we changed the circumstances. But we kind of understood that there were these basic mistakes that a lot of people were making. Now, look. This is not a technical book in the sense that I'm not going to sit there and explain to you how to construct the most perfect portfolio. There's no Monte Carlo right. method. But what it's There's no try- chapter on derivatives. Yeah, although I'm happy to talk about derivatives <laughs> with anybody. Um, but the thing that's really interesting for me is that underlying most of these mistakes is my thesis, which is that The reason why smart people keep making these financial mistakes is that we tend to be guided by our emotions. And so you want to think that every financial decision that you make is a mathematical one. And it's just not the case. You know, I had a friend a long time ago who said to me, uh, talking about medicine, he said, you know, 
medicine, it's half art and half science. And if I get the science right, only half a chance to screw up. And I think that personal finance and any financial decision is also, it's half art and half science. So we want to get the math correct. But you really do have to acknowledge that we're human beings and we're driven by fear and greed and these weird cognitive biases that are just in our DNA. And, you know, frankly, we're not wired to be very good long-term financial decision makers. You know what we're really good at? Here comes a lion, run. That is what a human (laughs) being is great at. But let me contemplate a a risk that is 30 years down the line. We're not so good at that one. Yeah. You also made a great point early on in the book where, especially since you're talking about the dumb things smart people do with their money, a lot of smart people are afraid to look dumb, so they don't ask questions. Right, and I found this, I used to find this when I was uh, practice, in practice, you know, I would sit down with these really brilliant doctors and lawyers and even accountants, and we would talk about different issues, and I would sort of look and try to do the salesman thing, the saleswoman thing, like lean in and see, are they getting it, are you getting it? And I'm trying to see, is the head shaking? And what I would often say is, so it, I don't think I'm explaining this right. Let me ask you a question. Do you, is there a better way for me to, are you getting this? Mm-hmm. And you sort of, let me try it a different way. And I think that the problem is that sometimes you don't want to act as if you don't trust the person you're talking to. And sometimes you don't want to look stupid. Sometimes you feel bad about your lack of knowledge about a particular topic. But I don't feel that way when I'm with a doctor. I don't know about you. I ask the dumbest questions in the universe. I'll say, I don't get that. And I I really think I want people to understand that most financial professionals who are really good about what what they're doing and are really smart, they want you to ask questions. That is a sign that you're engaged in the process. All right. So let's run through some of them. We don't have, we can't go through all of them. You you want people to read the book. Right. Uh, For me personally, I'm going through this now. I have a high school senior, so we're trying to decide which college to go to. Thank God he got into a few. Um... And you, you say in your book that one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they kind of overpay for college. Yes. How so? Uh, you know, this has gotten a ton of feedback because this is a chapter that's highly emotional, right? You have kids, and if your son came to you and said, you know, back in November, I want to apply to all these schools, and you're, you sort of nod your head, but maybe you haven't really run the numbers for your household and what you can afford, and your kid comes back and you say, okay, well... He gets into Rutgers and he gets into some private school that is two or three times the cost of Rutgers. And in that moment, it's very hard for you to say to your kid, I can't afford it. I I never should have let you apply to that school. So what I want families to really start thinking about is college is a decision to be made among the generations. And so that may be grandparents, parents and the kids. And we have to have much more open, transparent conversations starting as early as, say, ninth grade about what the family can afford. Because you don't have to pay as much as the, the list price for a private university um, and, and necessarily think that that's going to lead to the best outcome. Some of the stories that I've heard, the sort of the, the worst stories, the kid comes out with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and doesn't really seem to get a job that's that yeah. much better than the Rutgers kids, right? So why, why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because we don't want the kids saddled with so much debt. 
that really does change the choices that that kid makes in his 20s and 30s. Conversely, I don't want the parents to be saddled with the debt because, you know, if you are looking at your own retirement and you say, well, you know what, I won't put money in my 401k plan while the kid's in school, that's not good either. So we don't want you to shortchange. The one statistic that came out after we put the book together is really blowing my mind lately. The fastest growing segment of, of student loan borrowers are those over the age of 60. Wow. And if that does not make you sit up and say, something's wrong with what we're doing here, then I don't know what does. So you really want to make sure the kid's involved in the process, that you're, you're actually getting an education that is going to lead you to a good outcome. It doesn't have to be the best. I don't think everyone has to be a coder. I'm a liberal arts major. I love liberal arts. But I think that unless you can really afford school, going into debt up to your eyeballs is not worth it. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm guessing that this other chapter that I'm about to mention has probably ruffled some feathers too. You buy a house when you should rent. You say that's one of the big mistakes. This I bet a lot of people say everybody has the right to own a home, and you say, hold on a minute. Yes, everyone has the right. I just don't think it's the best decision for everybody. Yeah. I wrote this for my friends here in the tri-state area who feel bad about themselves because they can't actually own. I have been uh, somewhat dismayed by how persistent that great American dream, the dream of home ownership, is. And I noticed with uh, early in the 90s, when I was still a financial planner, people would really reach to buy a home when it really made no sense. And no matter how much I could show them on paper, black and white, like, well, look, renting makes more sense today than buying, they really would react against it. So what is the, the bottom line here is there is, a, there is a great case to be made for buying and there's a great case to be made for renting. What I'm encouraging people to do is to run the numbers, is to see what really makes sense. You know, I love, there's a calculator. The New York Times has an awesome calculator. It's the New York Times buy versus rent calculator. And why is this so interesting is that it really lays out what you are paying in rent versus what it costs to buy. And then, you know, you, it layers on a lot of different questions. I'm worried that people are spending their very last dollars that are in their liquid savings accounts just to buy a place, and it may not actually be in their best interest to do so. So I'm happy when people are, are renting and doing so for the right reasons. You know, you know what, like, we grew up in a year much younger than I am, and that's obvious, but I grew right. up in a generation <laughs> where people would say, renting is like throwing money out the window. Yes. Right? Yep. Yep. All right. So I want to reframe that and say this. Renting is not throwing money out the window. Renting is buying opportunity. If you want to be able to take a job that's in a different area, you know, maybe today you say, oh, I want to buy, I'm going to buy in northern New Jersey. But all of a sudden, you have a job offer and it's in Fairfield, Connecticut, and that makes no sense for you. And if you want to have the ability to move, that mobility is huge. If you don't want to have all of your money plowed into a house at a time where your kids need to be going to school and maybe it's private school, all these things have to be taken together. There are no hard and fast rules. I guess that's the other part of the book, which is there are certain things I really say you have to do. But for most, for most cases, it's, it really is dependent on you and your circumstances. So you've really got to kind of bat away those old notions and say, what's right for our family? Yeah. Well, like you said earlier, uh, it's one of those decisions where it shouldn't be about emotion. But a lot of people get emotional. They want to. They want to settle down. They want the house, and it's a tough call. You know, my mother was a realtor in Westchester for a long time, and I remember, like, here, you know, we would always hear one side of the conversation she was having with her <laughs> clients, 
and uh, she, so these, this couple just was bereft because they lost a house. And I heard my mother say this, and it always stuck with me, and she swears she didn't say it, but I know I heard this. She said, listen, a house is like a man. There's more than one for you in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and some are sturdier than others. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> now, here's another one that we've personally been through recently. It's a pain in the neck. One of the dumb things smart people do with their money is they don't get a will. Why did you wait so long to do that? Just out of curiosity. Many no, parents do that. No, I've done it. Yeah. Just one of our parents didn't do it. Okay, so why, do you, think they, why do you think they didn't do it? Well, I just think they didn't want to have to talk about it. They didn't want to deal with it, no, right? Like, well, I don't wake up every morning and be like, you know what? Today is a great day. I want to talk about death. Let's do a will. Let's yeah. do a will. Let me <laughs> contemplate my mortality. So I understand that. It is the one chapter that is essentially an extended guilt trip to get people to do this. And here's why. When I was a financial planner, I had a client whose husband was quite sick and he kept saying everything's taken care of. And then he died and there was no will. And it was a hot mess to clean that up. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people will come back to me and say, they're going to watch this, they're going to listen to this, and they're going to say, well, I went through the probate process. It wasn't that big a deal. It, okay, in some cases it's not. It would be a lot easier for all involved to get the matter taken care of. Also, I always wonder, well, what is it that you don't want to do? For many people, where do they get stuck in the process? It's their young couples, and they have the quintessential fight about who's going to be the guardian of the oh, kids. Oh, yeah, we've had right? that. Right? Everyone has that one. <laughs> and, you know, I think the problem is that you think you're making this election, and it's an irrevocable decision. And so I must be very careful. It's not. You can always change your wills. You can change guardianship. So if you are stuck and that is the pain point, just pick anyone, mm. literally anyone. Just name somebody who you feel is going to be able to raise your kids with your consistent values. Um, I remember with my sister, I was living out of state when she first had kids. And she says, well, what do I do? You know, you're not here. I said, just name mommy and daddy. And like, they're 55, 52, 55 years old. It's fine. They can do it now. And then as they got older, we switched it. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece. The other thing is a lot of people will say, I don't have any money. What do I need a will for? You know, if you have kids, you need a will. And if you have any stuff, you need a will. And if you really think about it, any one of us, any young adult even, could walk out and in the middle of the street, as I recount in the book, my great fear being hit by the M57. So I think that anyone knows that you could be, bad things can happen. And so if a bad thing happens, how do you want your health care managed? Who's going to make financial decisions for you? And it doesn't have to be you're on a resuscitator. It can be that you are laid up because you got shellacked by the M57 crossing West End Avenue, and now you need someone to actually go make a deposit of a check mm -hmm. in an account for you. So you need to have a will, a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy. We really want to encourage people to do this. That is my extended guilt trip. Have I done well? <laughs> you did very well. Right, yes. I feel a little tinge right now, Phew. actually. All right. The other chapter I really love, the dumb thing people do with their money, is they try to time the market. And I know this probably drives you crazy. We have you on the radio all the time. Every time the Dow goes up or down 500 points, let's call Jill and find out what we're supposed to do. And you say... Relax. For most people, don't do anything. And almost for everybody. Uh, but I will also say, guilty as charged. This is my dumb thing that I did uh, many years ago, and I learned a brutal lesson. 
again, a classic smart, now I'm telling, saying you that I'm smart, but it's a classic smart person mistake, and here's why. Um, I was trained as a trader. I was a commodities trader on the floor of the commodities exchange. And so in that role, what you're pretty much trained to do is to, you know, get in between the buy order, the sell order, collect a few shekels, go home early, right? That's really what you're doing. And you hope that you do it better than a lot of other people because you're doing analysis and you're looking at charts and you are um, understanding the way that the mathematical equation works. So very, actually a very easy calculation, hard to execute. So when I became a money manager and I would be writing very publicly about my thoughts about what was going on, I could sort of make it seem as if I knew when the top and the bottom of any market was. And in the late 90s, the technology boom was going great guns. And um, very late in 1999, I wrote a piece in the local newspaper where my business was located. And I said, I think the tech boom is really, you know, gone to on too long. I'm getting out of a lot of technology stocks. I'm pulling back my stock allocation. Bah, 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 bah. And well, six months later, I'm a genius. Wow, yeah. Yay me, Look right? You, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Except I might have made that first decision very well, but what I did not do is I made I didn't make the second decision, the necessary decision, when to get back in. And I had egg on my face, and I got letters from people who were just killing me. And I basically had to write, you know, at some point, you're right. Absolutely, I missed it. I missed the bottom. I missed the big part of the recovery. And that was a great lesson to me because timing the market essentially means that you think you know where the top and the bottom is or the bottom and the top is. And what we know is that research has proven that over the long term, it's incredibly difficult to do that very well. It's funny, like I've heard Warren Buffett speak about this, and he'll say very clearly, I'm not a market timer. What I do is I always have some cash around, and when things get to extreme levels, then I can go look at a company. I can go say, hey, Goldman Sachs, you're almost out of business. I think I will make an investment in you. That is very different than what we are doing with our financial lives. Don't time the market. You're not so smart. I was not so smart, and it's one of the reasons that I think I wanted to be very public about that mistake because it it was a bad one, and it was an embarrassing one. Yeah, everybody makes them. You were very forthright about that. Now, listen, we only have a little time left. Now, the one criticism I have about this. Not dedicated to you. I'm this sorry. Is, this is PG-13, this book. There's some oh. language in here, right? It's a little salty. Did I, did I mention that now, I was a why, commodities trader? Why? The, well, I guess you heard that a lot on Wall Street, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little salty language in here, I got to yeah. say, young lady. Uh, yeah, there's an F-bomb in there. Yep. There's an S-bomb I was kind of surprised to see that, yeah. Yeah. But you have a reason for it, though. Well... Look, most financial books are deathly boring, let's be honest. And I've read a lot of them. It's fine. Um, part of this book is, a, is an expression of who I am. It's, far, it's funny that you should say that because a lot of people, friends of mine who listen to 880, like dedicated listeners, friends of mine, I grew up in Westchester, and people will say to me, you're so much more yourself on radio than you are on TV. Well, that's interesting. And I think that my radio personality is truly more myself, and this book is more of who I am. It is a way to kind of capture someone's attention. It is probably going to get me a little bit of blowback for some people, but ah. it's not used in a, in a mean way. 
it, it is meant to really show that that is real, that thing that you're doing, that is really dumb. Or it's also meant to say, you know, when we all stub our toes in the middle of the night, when Lori's laughing at you, what do you say right before she starts laughing? You say, oh, yeah. and that is the moment I'm trying to capture, that we have those moments in our lives. And so I was, I kind of fought for it, publisher pushed back a little bit, but when we kind of opened the book with it, everyone said, you know what, it works. Yeah. Well, it's a great book. It's an easy read, as you said. It's uh, a lot of good advice in there. Jill Schlesinger, you got the book. You're on TV. Got the podcast. Your Islanders are in first place. I mean, oh what the? Oh, my God. You I can't believe fire. you just jinxed it. You, you just are, jinxed well, it. I can't even believe it. I don't like them, so I'm trying to bring them back. Oh, now. dear. Anyway, well, you know what? If you have a question and you something comes up about the book, just send me an email. Yeah, Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. I, I got that connection. There it is. Jill Schlesinger, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. We love having you on the air all the time. Jill Schlesinger, everybody, on WCBS Author Talks. I'm Michael Wallace. Thanks for joining us. I'm walking away a little smarter. I hope you are, too. We've posted the video of our interview with Jill at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. Just look for it under the Author Talks heading. Next time around, we talk with author Chris Formant about the forgotten sacrifice that saved the Continental Army from capture during the Revolutionary War. It's a fascinating story finally getting its due. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.